welcome to The Visitors Might Be Listening, the unofficial podcast where we'll be discussing all things related to For All Mankind, the Apple TV Plus show. I'm your returning host, Lewis Ryan. With me, I have my co-host, Mr. Mike Levito. How's it going? And don't forget our trusty dog, Sparky. Say hello, Sparky. <coughs> Whoa, settle down, boy. <laughs> all right, so Mike and I are back again. Um, we have returned from lunar orbit and we are back with all sorts of goodies from the moon namely mm-hmm. episodes five and six of season one of for all mankind and uh i guess these are two pretty great episodes mike what did you think yeah i agree i, I think um into the abyss which is episode five is really i think one of the first great kind of like thrilling moments of the show um you know sort of like that uh the climax towards the end and then i would say and also kind of I guess I think it gets a little deeper into the emotions of some of these characters. And then episode six, I think also kind of goes a little further with those emotions and really sets in forward kind of like the conflicts that'll energize the rest of the show. Yeah, so I'm I'm excited. So it's the halfway point of the season. So lots of things have uh, certainly changed. I was thinking when I was watching, rewatching these two episodes, like how much has changed since uh, the first two episodes we were discussing, you know, the first two episodes of the series. Mm-hmm. And how we were saying it's like kind of like boy i wish we got to know these characters a bit more but it's like now i feel like i know these characters a whole lot more and i feel like it's very exciting to watch their um stories play out yeah i would agree and I, I think it's pretty impressive too i mean we talked a lot about molly cobb last episode because she's only introduced in the third episode she's only introduced two episodes ago and it's i think it's pretty interesting how like quickly they kind of ramp her up into being um, a major character and someone who you, know, you, you really get invested in and, and someone who you can really root for by the end of the episode. Speaking of Molly, why don't we just dig into episode five, which is entitled Into the Abyss. It's a very dramatic sounding title. <laughs> and I'll just note that it's written by uh, David Weddle and Bradley Thompson, who, going back to our first podcast episode, are two, two writers and producers of Star Trek Deep Space Nine along with uh, series creator Ronald D. Moore. So we're, we're in good hands this week. People who know good writing for TV shows set in space, which is applicable because this is really, I would say, our first episode really set on the moon. We had little scenes before, but this is really like we're firmly, you know, have a show set on the moon now. Yes, they, we, we, fi- we finally, much like how Ed has finally landed, we, the viewer, have finally landed as well. We're finally there. We, we get, like, POV shots and everything. We now know what it's like to be on the moon. As we, we ended last episode with uh, Apollo 15 taking off um, from Earth, we now follow them as they land on the moon near Shackleton Crater, which was sort of a, a last-minute change in their plan to sort of like land um, and try to find ice on the moon, mm-hmm. hopefully before the Russians did, because that would ensure that uh, you know if there's ice on the moon, that means there's water, and that's useful for synthesizing fuel which could hopefully lead to further space exploration where they could go i don't know mars i guess and then maybe out to the the cosmos find uh find the dune planet with the spice (laughs) and then um from after that we can you know sort of use human beings as you know we can enhance their consciousness so they can form intense calculations to enable further space travel and then at a certain point we can you know um, evolve into giant worms full of psychic energy but anyways, let's get back to the here and now. So it's 1972 still. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have our crew. We have Ed, 
uh, Ed Baldwin, Molly Cobb, and um, what was the name of the, the third fellow? Do you know? Oh, I should know, but uh, I Because it was weird don't. when I, was, I rewatched this episode, I just assumed it was Gordo, mm-hmm. but he's still on Earth. Yeah, it's Frank Sedgwick. Frank Sedgwick, an important character who will come into play in season five. <laughs> um, when it's revealed that he's actually Russian. Yes, yeah. Yeah, but no, Frank's just the guy that they leave on the uh, orbiter. Yeah, he's, he's got like the Michael Collins role. He, he never actually makes it to the moon. And we'll be talking about Michael Collins a little bit later. Uh, but right now, it's just Ed and Molly, you know, are landing on the moon to try and find some ice. So we get, I don't know if there's really a whole lot to say about the beginning part of this sequence, because just really nice cinematography of like them calmly and competently landing on the moon. And it looks really good. Yeah, it looks like, good. Uh, and um, the, the score, I think, is also very good. It reminded me a lot of the score for Interstellar, actually. That kind of like dramatic, like elliptical kind of like swelling. Yeah, and the part when they um, they fall into Shackleton's crater and it turns out there was an extra dimension behind <laughs> Deke Slayton's bookcase, mm-hmm. that reminded me a lot of Interstellar as well. Yeah, I agree. Who would have thought? No, but they, they land on the surface of the moon uh, successfully, and they, they try to find ice, but they're really not having a whole lot of luck finding any ice on the moon. Yeah, they're... Uh, they're um... They're not having a ton of luck. Uh, They're just digging up basically dry holes. But they're right near Shackleton Crater, which I believe they say is like three times as deep as the Grand Canyon. And the thought is, well, if there's water anywhere, it's going to be in this, you know, somewhere deeper into this giant hole that the sun has not shown on in like, you know, millions of years. And so I feel like a big chunk of the episode is it's all it's really about like kind of weighing the risk in a way right they have to weigh the risk of whether or not to change the plane and land closer to shackleton and then they have to weigh the risk of whether or not to go into the crater to try and find ice and i guess before we get to the ending a lot of this episode like i'm trying to remember now is just sort of about molly sort of um we're just sort of treated to like the uh the media perspective of like mm-hmm. molly's the first american woman in space the first astronaut as opposed to cosmonaut yes and um, so we get scenes of Molly's live interviews with, you know, the media mm-hmm. when they're in space, which um, I don't know. Did you look into if that that happened, Mike? Um, I know there definitely were um, broadcasts. Like I know Apollo 13, um, there was definitely broadcast directly from like the space capsule. I don't know. I actually didn't look into if the interviews actually happened while they were on the moon i mean i know obviously there was clearly like television signals but yeah um we don't know yes um probably did happen and so and you know we're watching molly sort of becoming like a a darling of the media eye Mm -hmm. you know they want to take pictures of molly when she's on the moon and we're sort of treated to the media from uh karen and wayne's perspective Mm because they're they're stuck on earth and we sort of develop that relationship a little bit further because wayne comes over to the baldwin household with everyone to sort of watch the landing right and that sort of continues where their relationship sort of started off last week yeah and it's like um you know karen is obviously like this very straight laced very very conservative almost like a karen if you will (laughs) and uh how would you describe wayne like he's a hippie you know he um He's, he's got long hair, he's got a mustache, he he paints rock posters, you know, for, for concerts and stuff, and 
Um, as they note, he smells kind of funny, and the reason he smells kind of funny is because he, he likes to smoke weed. And, you know, he's just like, again, it's this very sort of like Mad Men-esque, it's like clash between, you know, the counterculture and sort of the, the established sort of ways of uh, traditional Americana that, that, that's going on. Yeah, Wayne. Wayne's this very sort of like hippie-ish guy who like paints rock posters. Did um, did you catch uh, any band names on the posters, Mike? Because I know you mentioned Santana, and I know they showed a couple posters. I'm not sure if they were of a. I'm not sure if those were inspired by real posters or whatnot, or um, if the bands they had on them were. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. The only thing I noticed was the Santana one, but I I didn't notice any other. Uh any other specific ones and he's listening to kind of like um indian like sitar music it sounds like which again is like a very you know 60s hippie kind of thing more ravi shankar i guess yeah yeah so karen obviously sort of like dislikes wayne i guess you could say she she goes over to his house and she sort of has a confrontation with him about Mm -hmm. like smoking weed because it could get him in trouble with the law yeah i mean well i think what it really starts is that you know he, he shows up and you know, a lot of the people there are kind of seasoned, you know, astronaut wives, basically, right? In the case of Tracy and Ellen, they're, they're astronauts themselves. This is Wayne's first rodeo of this kind of thing, and, and he's very freaked out, right? And he goes to Karen and he tells her, you know, about this dream he has where he's like walking naked on the moon and he sees Molly sort of like burned alive um, because her ship crashes or whatever. And he's just like very terrified of the prospect of her dying. And Karen goes, I think she, you know, she, they end up kind of talking about weed and, and all that. But I, I think it's, it's kind of unclear what the initial like purpose of her visit is. I think we're meant to imply she's either meant to trying to apologize to Lynn because she kind of pushes him away at the party. Or she's there to kind of be like, hey, can we please like stop talking about this? But it ends up being this very this, this thing where for it seems like for the first time in a while, Karen's kind of able to unburden herself to Wayne and talk about this dream she has about Ed crashing in the jungles of Korea and then getting eaten by a panther. You know, it's the very classic kind of like, you know, two two very different seeming people. Turns out they have something in common that they kind of end up bonding over. Yeah, it turns out that they both really care about their spouses. Yes. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah. Yeah, and then um, when Wayne shows up later, they seem to have more of an understanding, and Wayne gives her a really graphic present of a, a panther ripping up a bloody body or something. Yeah, it's because Wayne, Wayne's a painter, and he when when Karen gets to his apartment, he's already painted like Molly's death, basically, and he comes um, on the day of the descent into the the crater, which we'll talk more about later. He comes with a painting. We're meant to assume Ed being eaten by a panther. And Karen's kind of, like, taken aback by it. She kind of just kind of, like, shoves it in the corner. But, you know, it's it's this sort of awkward peace offering slash, uh, I don't know, symbol of, like, kinship. I interpreted it as that Karen appreciated it, but it is just, like, it's a weird painting. Right. So yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it would certainly <laughs> catch someone's eye if you hung it up. But I, like, yes. I don't know if it really fits with her decor at all. No. Yeah, so I think, um, yeah, that's sort of uh, one of our first subplots is how they react to sort of the landing of Ed and Molly on the moon. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a good place now for our for us to take, uh, take our first break. So we'll take a break, and then uh, we'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 
Hi, I'm Lars Emerson. And I'm Mike Levito. And we're the hosts of the Post Writers Podcast, Watching Mates. It's our podcast in which we explore the trends in film under each post-war presidency and reflect on how presidents and the zeitgeist of the era shaped the movies of their time. So be sure to check it out wherever podcasts are found or on thepostwriter.com. back mike did you uh find anything in shackleton crater i found some ice that i'm gonna deliver to nixon for his his drink his cocktail he said yeah, he well, what some, drink was that again some kind of i was I a should... highball yeah sure i didn't realize nixon was like known as a big drinker yeah you've seen nixon the oliver stone movie that, that movie's just about him being a drunk <laughs> <laughs> yeah so then our, our other subplot focuses on um the other member of uh, sort of the revived Mercury program, uh, Danielle, right? Yes. Uh, we meet Danielle's husband, Clayton, who has just gotten back from Vietnam, and who, as we can tell from his reaction to being saluted as he leaves whatever Air Force base he landed at, is, uh, is not happy about Vietnam. He throws his medals at the sentry. Yeah, um, he's not happy about being in Vietnam. Yeah, and then they, they meet Gordo at the outpost and um things get get a little bit tense wouldn't you say mike it feels very awkward yeah it's um and the, the way they kind of signify that awkwardness awkwardness is through music again because a louis armstrong song starts to play in the jukebox and gordo's like oh do you like do you like louis armstrong danielle and she's like oh i like his like hot five and hot seven records you know these sort of like original jazzy records and he's like yeah i don't know those but i really love his you know version of hello dolly you know his kind of like sellout stuff and it kind of escalates from there. Gordo, who I don't know if it's really been established yet that Gordo has a drinking problem, but he like clearly has a drinking problem, just kind of keeps on drinking and is asking these very probing questions to Clayton about Vietnam. And uh, it, it things just kind of descend from there. Yeah, they really have like a sort of a pissing match mm-hmm. about whether it's more noble or brave or manly about like being on the front lines in Vietnam or like being an astronaut who goes into space and you know never sees any combat it's just like this very tense and awkward scene and obviously it's supposed to deliberately be that way but it's just, it's still they did a good job making it feel really awkward yeah it's kind of it's like a slow boil right like it starts with these little digs about like Nilai and napalm bombing and you know, because it's revealed that Gordo has never, unlike Ed, he didn't fight in Korea, right? He was too young to fight in Korea. And actually him being an astronaut made, you know, saved him from going to Vietnam, basically. And so there's this kind of like the chip on Gordo's shoulder in a way just kind of gets a little bit bigger in this episode. What did what did you think about this, Mike? Because I did, I did, was thinking about how there was in um, the previous episodes, there was a scene of Deke watching Nixon talk about Vietnam on TV, but like, in terms of like political, the p- political realities of the era, we've been sort of mostly in a bubble mm-hmm. related to just anything about the space program and anything politically involved with the space program and a lot of like Vietnam or like anything else that's went on in reality in the 1970s had been sort of mostly ignored. So what did you think about having this sort of window into uh, sort of the Vietnam era? I mean, it makes sense. I, you you kind of really can't make a movie about this era without mentioning Vietnam. 
like the twist in this is that it's supposed to be i believe that vietnam is supposed to is supposed to have ended basically right because when deke is watching nixon he says he's signing a peace treaty which did not happen at that point um in real life it's it's maybe like a little awkward if only because it's not really revisited later in the show like this is the the most they end up discussing vietnam but i think you're right in that it kind of pierces the bubble a little bit right like there was the documentary that was released last year summer of soul which was about the um it was called like the ha- the harlem cultural festival and they talk about in that movie about the moon landing and how actually for certain communities in the united states specifically communities of color like it was not viewed as as much of a triumph it was just kind of viewed as a trifle in a way right and there was this idea that there was there was so much money invested in reaching the moon when that movie when that money could have been used in like more productive ways so i think you know you get that kind of this is obviously a show with a lot of reverence for nasa with a lot of reverence for the american space program you get this kind of like a little bit of dissent that i think is probably important to just you know make it a little more complex and how did you feel about sort of because i was like thinking about this a little bit about how being an astronaut is sort of viewed as a cushy position and you know it it kind of is obviously the episode shows that molly is sort of like a celebrity she's like on the news and whatnot i think there's sort of a unfair implication that these astronauts are not risking their lives Mm -hmm. and you know obviously to agree they're um they make you know space travel as safe as possible for them and they want to avoid any accidents but there is there is a good chance of them losing their lives um by being an astronaut so i don't know if gordo exactly saying he's like got out of combat which you know obviously being in combat i i guess like what i'm trying to say is that it's a little bit more gray than the black and white that they're trying to make do you did you think about that at all when you were watching it mike yeah absolutely and i i think they also try to they also try to make a little gray in that scene as well because I think the implication is that Gordo is not only like du- he's not like he's not like ducking service to duck it. I think there's also an implication that he thinks there's something morally wrong going on in Vietnam, as does Clayton, obviously, um, and he kind of is able to absolve himself by not participating. But there is that one scene I think towards the end where uh, Molly and Ed have this kind of heart to heart about like Ed talks about how he feels kind of guilty for leaving his son Shane back on earth while he's on the moon and how he's, he's only, he doesn't feel like he's a very good dad. And Molly basically says, yeah, it's, you and I are both like selfish pricks, right? Like Wayne is terrified that I'm up here, but I want to do it. You want to do this. And she's like, but we are the Columbus Magellan of our age, right? Like there is no progress without people like us. And I think that that is kind of this episode's in some ways it's like thesis, right? Or one of it, one of their, one of its theses, is that progress is dependent on taking risk and then sometimes a dose of selfishness so that people can kind of achieve the glory that eventually leads to greater human advancement. Yeah, that's it's sort of a little exchange of dialogue that wraps up everything in a nice, neat little bow. So then I guess before we get to the ending, just discussing the Danielle scene a little bit further, is that um, I guess there's like the underlying implicitness of the character's race. Mm-hmm. right obviously gordo is a white man and um danielle's husband you know is black as is danielle mm-hmm. so obviously there's this implication that they didn't have black men in the space program mm-hmm. which um i'm sure um you can google and find out I don't, has there any been when was the first uh when was the first black male astronaut yeah no there certainly has been but it wasn't until the 80s it was 
uh, Guion, I believe he actually went by uh, Guy or Guy Bluford, was the first uh, black astronaut. And that was not until, I believe, 1982. Excuse me, 83. So it definitely took a while. And I, you know, it, it's, you know, and it's, it's funny, right? Because, you know, obviously the past few episodes, it talks about kind of like this great progress of getting a woman to moon and a woman to space. And and yet there is still there, there's still more progress to be made, right? But yeah, there there is that again, like the Louis Armstrong thing. I think is also meant to highlight that. But yeah, it's 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 really kind of our. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but like you know, that's I keep talking about Mad Men because obviously they cover similar eras. But it's like that was like the, one of the big knocks on Mad Men is that it really doesn't like tackle race at all. There really aren't very many like major black characters in Mad Men, and for all mankind, is I would say a pretty good job. You know, again, like, and as a white guy, maybe I, I'm not qualified to, like, you know, assess how, you know, make have the definitive statement on how good a job it does of this. But it certainly does a better job of Mad Men of exploring those issues. Yeah, well, it's sort of like, historically, in Vietnam, it was highly proportionate of um, African Americans, right, who were fighting on the front lines in Vietnam, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, you can watch dozens of movies that made, like, Platoon, for instance, You've got um, Keith David there. Um, mm-hmm. Any, you know, um, so I think it would have, obviously, if you have a prominent African-American character in the 70s of a certain age, then it's like, it makes sense to just make them a person who was in Vietnam and saw combat. Because um, that just uh, reflects the, the reality yeah. of what happened. That covers that. So I guess we can go back to the exciting climax of this week's episode, which was the, um, the Shackleton Crater excavation where it's sort of the running out of time and um oxygen and fuel and stuff and so it's like they they were sent to the moon to try and find ice and they, so far they've had no luck so their plan is that they'll go inside this crater as you mentioned it's really deep really deep um it's deeper than my thoughts on carlos castaneda um, <laughs> so the the idea is that it's like no sunlight has reached inside this crater so if there's any decent shot of like ice being down there it's probably there where it's like just been completely frozen and cold so molly and ed come up with a plan to uh use some rope and their lunar buggy to um create a winch and lower lower one of themselves down into it to try and dig out some ice and uh it's it's pretty exciting don't you don't you think mike yeah i agree um it, it, I don't know, it feels almost kind of silly to try and, like, describe an exciting, like, scene via podcast. But, yeah, it's great. It, um, you know, because there, there's just, like, a lot of things going on with it, right? There's sort of, like, the physical precariousness of it. Um, there's, like, the improvised nature of the winch with the rover. And then there's also, like, the ticking clock, right? And it's not even, like, a, a I mean, it is a time limit, but it's just the idea that, like, Molly is going to, like, suffocate if she doesn't do this fast enough, right? And you get kind of like the shots going back from the crater to Mission Control where they're monitoring her O2 and then to the Baldwin house where they're all watching it on TV. Um, It's just this really exciting sort of all of like the stakeholders kind of come together in the end and are watching this one pivotal moment. And yeah, it's just it's really well done. Yeah, um, a lot of things going on here. Like like you said, you got ticking clock of the O2 counting down. I think that the show does a good job like telling it sort of visually of just sort of the um the man versus natureness of it because like they're alone mm-hmm. and it's just molly and ed 
And it's like they have a scene where Molly and Ed go back and forth about who should be lowered down, and ultimately they decide on Molly because she she weighs less. And it's like one we know, I think we know at this point that like Ed's the main character, right? Yeah. I think anyone with a half a brain can tell like Ed is the main character, so it's like they're not going to kill him off. So it's like if they if they had Ed go down instead of Molly, then it's like we would you know we would kind of know. So it's like it's Molly who's you know not a main character at this point. So, and, you know, we've already had a woman die on the show. Yes. Emphasize that it's really deep. Yes. The crater, really deep. There's no light. Mm-hmm. They only have, like, one flashlight. And it's, like, this very tenuous rope. And it's just, it, they do a lot to just emphasize how much of, like, this is this is really scary. Mm-hmm. I don't know who has the fortitude to do this. And I, I would be interested to know if any of the astronauts did anything similar to this on any real life mission yeah i don't believe so i looked up the actual apollo 15 and uh they did not descend into a crater um they just did kind of like the very like surface level it it was the first apollo mission to use a a moon rover um but it was you know nothing as intense as this and I, i think we would know we still we still actually don't know if there is ice in shack in the Shackleton crater, so obviously there's never been a successful um, exploration into it. You know they they they've used kind of like radar and other tools to to check it out, but no one's ever actually gone deep inside. I think we just don't have, you know, we in real life there there's also a, a risk averse and sort of like cautious culture with that kind of a thing. But um, yeah. It's 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 a very very exciting scene and like yeah we don't have any real astronauts that are as much of a <laughs> self-involved narcissists like Ed and <laughs> Molly who are just willing to overlook the um, sheer uh, odds to um, go deep inside a crater to try and find ice and they have Molly swing and then she immediately like because of gravity she immediately like spins around and like floats away and it's very like ah oh, you clutch. Mm-hmm. clutch your loved ones or the pillow that you have next to you um like out of fear and molly has her video camera attached to her her big bulky early 70s camera and it's like molly can you hit the camera because we can't see and so it's like eh, eh, to get it working and then um it's like no luck no ice and it's like molly's like i'm gonna go deeper mm-hmm. it's like what you're gonna go even deeper yeah into the darkness but then eventually, eventually she finds ice, and it's like, yay! Very triumphant. It's it's the most. I don't think anyone's ever worked harder to find an ice cube than Molly Cobb, and it leads to this kind of scene where they're 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 just breathing very heavily. Then, in um, I guess the lunar module, and and it's just like this triumphant sort of like hoisting of the the ice that's in the bag. Um, and, and it plays... Yeah, and Ed takes more pictures of Molly. Yes, yes, he does. And, and it's got... Oh, God. I was like, I just want to know what kind of camera that is. Because Ed <laughs> seems really talented at taking great <laughs> pictures. Like, they look amazing. Like, magazine quality. And it's like, how does it look that good? Yeah. I don't understand. Where is the light source coming from? <laughs> it also seems like it has, like, an unlimited amount of film, too. Like, I feel like they're pretty indiscriminate with how they're using it. Um but like Molly in pictures, that was that's been kind of a theme over the last few episodes, right? She has like the very awkward like photo shoot before she goes up into space, where like they ask her to smile and she looks really creepy when she smiles, and they ask her to stop. Um, there's they kind of take they're taking pictures of her saluting 
in front of the flag when they finally get on the moon and, and she's clearly sort of like not into that but she's finally done something that she feels is worth photographing and it's this big sort of like triumphant moment yeah they find ice and then um we we go from that success into a big time jump where mm-hmm. we jump two years ahead into the future where they land um the the lunar base that was uh, talked about last week on the uh, on the moon jamestown base near shackleton crater mm-hmm. where hopefully they will get more ice and then we will be able to go off into the stars to try and find arrakis um <laughs> And that pretty much does it for that episode, where we can move on to episode six, Home Again. Another really good episode. Wouldn't you say, Mike? I, I would say. What, what do we got going on in this week's episode, Mike? So in Home Again, um, it begins very uh, dramatically, very startlingly. Uh, so Ed, Gordo, and Danny uh, are on Jamestown base. They've been there for a little bit now just kind of doing experiments doing maintenance on the base making it ready making it ready for the next crew and they're the 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 resupply and like the recrew mission is already two weeks behind but apollo 23 is about to launch gene kranz goes to visit michael collins who i believe is the, the commander of this mission and and sort of wishes them all luck and then as they get ready to launch uh, the space, the, the the rocket explodes prematurely. It kills Gene Kranz. It kills eleven other people on the tower. Uh, the there's an escape pod launched from uh, the spacecraft that instead of landing in the water, lands on the beach. So it saves the lives of the astronauts, but it injures them. And to add insult to injury, Margot has been passed over for the role of first female flight director, which has gone instead to Irene Hendricks, uh, courtesy of. The administration of President Ted Kennedy. What? 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 Yes, in this universe, Richard Nixon does not win re-election in a historic landslide against George McGovern. Instead, he loses to Ted Kennedy. Yeah, which is, I think this is really when it starts to be like the point of divergence mm-hmm. until like an alternate history really begins. Would you say that's the case, Mike? Yeah, it, it's where like the most notable noticeable differences are. Um, and there are a couple others that, that we'll talk about throughout the course of this episode. But obviously, Kennedy being president is, well, a different another Kennedy being president is the big one. Yeah. I wonder if anyone asked Michael Collins, like the real Michael Collins, because he was alive when this episode premiered, how he <laughs> felt about... Because I guess, like, I was, like, thinking, until you just reminded me that he doesn't technically die. Yeah. They escape. So I wonder how, if... Um, yeah, and Gene Kranz is obviously dead. No, he's not. He's still. I was gonna say he's still oh. alive. He's like eighty-eight in real life. Shoot. He's still alive in the show. He dies. That's uh, that's weird. Yeah. So that that's like an even more awkward uh, thing to happen to free to be killed off prematurely on TV. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. It's certainly a eye-catching way to start an episode. I don't know uh, how how similar is this to anything that really happened, like Apollo One. Did this explode like that? Yeah, well, Apollo 1, I believe, was actually, it was a training mission in which there was a fire and it it suffocated the astronauts on that mission. Um, I mean, like, the closest really would be Challenger, which didn't explode on the platform. It it exploded, you know, once it was trying to exit the atmosphere. Um, But this would, this is like, there's never been, like, just, like, a, a manned immolation 
of, of a rocket. You know, I'm sure there have been accidents. That obviously, there's sort of like Elon Musk's many failures with SpaceX. But, um, you know, there, there's never been like a, I believe, a scale, like a, like a, there's never been like, I think, a human cost to a NASA mission, on, on which, you know, is only like 12 people, I guess. But it's still, you know, compared to even Challenger or Columbia, that's that's still a lot of people. Yeah. And this episode is sort of really focusing on, because, um, as you said, this was a resupply mission meant to sort of relieve... Uh, Ed, Gordo, and Danny, who are on the moon in the Jamestown base, and then obviously they can't leave now. They're sort of stuck on the moon. And so this episode primarily deals with the fallout of our characters on Earth, really from their point of view of, um, you know, these three characters being stuck up on the moon and the fallout from the explosion. So um, who do you want to talk about first, Mike? Let's, hmm, who should we talk about first? Well, Margo has, like, I feel like the meatiest arc. We, well, let, let's touch on Deke first, though, because his is, happens pretty quickly. The big news with Deke is that he has, you know, so Deke, of course, is in charge of, like, naming the crews and selecting the crews. And he very sort of, like, dramatically is naming the name of Apollo, reading the name of the crews for Apollo 24 to uh, Wisner, who's the new NASA administrator. And he says, Ellen Waverly, who we've already met, uh, will be the mission commander. Harrison Liu will also be on it. And so will Deke Slayton. What? Yes. What? He has named himself an astronaut um, after sort of like washing out of the program because of a, I think it's like, it's like a heart condition, um, and decided that he will be going up to space finally because apparently it, the heart condition, for whatever reason, is no longer considered a, uh, an issue. And that, that's act- that actually happened to the real Deke Slayton. Oh, really? Yes, he was washed out of the program, but then he was finally medically cleared to fly and did so in, uh, I believe it was 1975. Yep, 1975. All these things that I think are just like half-baked TV show (laughs) ideas are things that actually happened. I know. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like Deke pulled... Isn't that like what Dick Cheney did? Yes, yes. (laughs) Yes, he headed up George W. Bush's search committee for vice president. Like, you know, who would be pretty good for this job. You know who I vetted? That's pretty good. <laughs> Me. It is just like, how can you do that? <laughs> I mean, Weisner just not be like, no. Yeah, it's almost like the ultimate president pardoning himself thing, right? Yeah, well, let, let's talk about that. That's another quick thing. It's like mm-hmm. that scene, there's a scene of um, Ted Kennedy calling Nixon on the phone. Yes. Which I think is, is a kind of, it's a bizarre scene in terms of like the president scenes that we've had in the past because mm-hmm. it is just sort of like they get like this fictional dialogue where the president where just, kennedy calls nixon and it's like nixon relaxing at his home yes. in california yeah. presumably and it's like dick i want you to know that i've decided <laughs> to pod you for anything involving watergate nixon's just like what yes <laughs> and he's he's very upset <laughs> well yeah because it makes nixon look like a, a jerk right yeah yeah, and and he, and he tells him to like watch out. It's like you know, be careful on Palm Springs, Teddy. <laughs> while while there's a picture of him like looking like a dope, like swimming in the ocean. Um, so yeah, it's weird that that storyline. I mean, it kind of comes back, but doesn't really come back. Like Nixon is never like a factor in the rest of the series. I guess they just do it to like be like, oh yeah, for like no one cares about Watergate anymore. I feel like it's kind of the. That's just like them sort of, like, taking care of that. Yeah, I guess they felt like they needed some resolution to Nixon. Yeah. 
or something. And it, I mean, it is kind of like cathartic, mm-hmm. but it ultimately like you could just remove it from the show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's just it's funny for whatever reason. Yeah. It's just funny. Just I, the way Nixon's just like what? I like to think someone's just like, wouldn't it be like like they just really wanted to see if they could like successfully Photoshop Ted Kennedy into the Oval Office. <laughs> and it worked. And um, so, uh, who should we talk about next? Uh, Ellen and Larry. Yeah, let's talk about Ellen and Larry. So the um, they they find out that the explosion was caused by a bad actuator, and basically there's been some studies done, and they, they you know it's a manufacturing error, right? But uh, just just to cover all of their bases, the FBI has come to NASA to try and figure out whether or not there may have been some russian saboteurs involved commies commies yes commies in the soup pinkos if you will and um that means that they have to interrogate larry and ellen who have something to hide that something is not being a communist that something is being gay or lesbian um and that kind of freaks them out a little bit and it makes them sort of like almost dive further deep dive deeper into this like pact of of secrets basically um they kind of like formalize their i guess relationship slash alliance as like we will pretend to be together to protect our careers yeah and we um we get this great uh, fbi agent played by everyone's favorite character actor james urbaniak mm-hmm. who uh who is delightfully devilish in the role of this fbi agent who's out to uncover any and all secrets that anyone might possibly have in the space program he he gives Larry a tough grilling. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted to ask you, Mike. I was like, <laughs> have you ever been to the? Is it the Palm Beach Club? I forget what the the club is called, but it's it's like the the May Rose District or something. Yeah, yeah. So he gives Larry a good grilling. The Bayou Landing. That's what it's called. Yeah, yeah. The In the Bayou Montrose Landing. District. And uh, Larry, Larry's able to because he's done this like over fifty times, is what he says. So he's able to just sail through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he and Ellen sort of need to figure it out. And then Pam, Pam is just like, I don't understand. Yeah. Well, so why, why? we we get this scene of the the Equal Rights Amendment being passed. Um, it, it's kind of like an odd scene because it's like I can't tell if they were expect. I guess they were expecting like the vote to be taking place at the Illinois Capitol at the time, while they're watching fake Barbara Walters talk about. Um, you know whether or not it's going to be passed and it's like oh oh i've 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 gotten word and just like touching your it's like you know the the vote is yay um so obviously the equal rights amendment did not pass in real life the equal rights amendment which would have uh you know amended the constitution to outlaw discrimination based on sex or gender and that it was like a one of the big sort of like civil rights fights of the 1970s it passed both houses of congress it passed both the House and the Senate, which are both houses of Congress. Um, and it was supported by actually both the Democratic and the Republican Party. Um, Gerald Ford, who was president, uh, obviously was was a supporter of the ERA, as was his wife, Betty Ford. Um, but it ultimately failed. Uh, it was sort of like one of the big, one of the first big successes of like the modern conservative movement was tor- like torpedoing the vote. So constitutional amendment i believe it's 38 states it has to be ratified in after it passes congress it only passed 35 and i think illinois like and there's a time limit on how long you can take to ratify something i think illinois 
was the last was like the nail in the coffin i believe so um i'm 100 sure there is a good mini series called mrs america which is about the whole fight over the era that you can also watch and yeah so that's like again another big divergence point and it it kind of emboldens pam a little bit right she's kind of you know very she's being as public as she can with her affection towards ellen at the bar and then larry's like it's the equal rights amendment not the gay rights amendment and it's like well hypothetically equal rights would mean gay rights too but that was the thing with the gay rights the equal rights amendment excuse me is that like the implications no one was like 100 percent sure of because it's like would it force women to serve in combat roles in the military would it make you know separate bathrooms illegal like these were some of the arguments that people who were opposed to it made but yeah and it kind of it it, it kickstarts this division between ellen and pam and ellen kind of trying to want to you know she's torn between her love for pam and the reality of her situation which is that she has to keep that part of her life under wraps if she wants to advance in her career yeah this is the for me this is like the start of when pam just becomes an annoying character (laughs) she just becomes more of an obstacle Mm -hmm. i guess than a character yeah where it's just annoying how she just doesn't get that um ellen you know is gonna get kicked out of the space program Mm -hmm. or worse yeah (laughs) and it's like she doesn't keep the secret and it's like pam this is like a downside of the fact that we're introduced to um ellen and pam being in a physical relationship is sort of like the end of a twist is that we don't really get any context for it mm-hmm. like pam is just like oh they're together and then we don't really as a result we get much more screen time with larry and ellen yeah and i like seeing the two of them working together more than i like seeing ellen and pam or larry and pam or anyone with pam <laughs> at all um do you feel similarly mike um, I guess it's like an undeveloped relationship. Like there's that one scene where they're in bed together and Ellen's kind of like, oh, I don't know about this. Like maybe this is just a phase. And Pam's like, yeah, I thought that too. And they have this kind of conversation. It's like, I, I understand the purpose of that scene. It was to kind of like illustrate the strain this was having on their relationship. Um, I, but I would agree it's like a little underdeveloped. And I think that's partly just a consequence of the, the show just having like a massive cast of characters. Also, it's like, how long has it been since episode one? Like, five years? Oh, that's a good point. Well, I mean, they, they don't get together in episode one. They get together no, in episode three. No, but I'm just saying, three. like, Pam's just been a bartender for, like, five years. That's true. She has been. I mean, like, the aging curve for these people as the seasons go on and on will become more and more confusing. But that is a good point. She, ha- she has been at the outpost for a while. Is, like, no uh, ambition or forward progress in, oh, in their life? Oh, the, the first episode's in, like, what, 69? So, and this is 70, like, 3, 74. So, it's it's only been... Yeah. Like, I mean, I guess at that time, she was probably making enough money for a mansion. In a yeah, she does, she does live in a very nice house, actually. At least, you know. <laughs> I'm sure a nicer, like, nicer than any house you could buy in today's dollars on a on a bartender's salary, at least. And it is, it is funny how um, Larry and Ed, they all complain about their government salary yes when it's they live in these really nice right, yeah. houses which i assume in ed's case is probably provided to him by the government yeah so there's that plot line and um then i guess we can just dive into margot's plot line which is really the as you said the big juicy meaty part <laughs> of the episode yeah so what's going on with margot so what happens is is that uh the uh, nasa commissions a separate 
like a second opinion on what went wrong with the rocket launch. And Margo gets called into Wisner's office, and he's like, hey, you know, uh, we, we hired this guy to write a report on what happened, and uh, we need you to go collect the report. And she's like, well, what the hell does that mean, collect the report? He's like, we need you to go get it. And she's like, why me? He's like, because this is a guy who will only give it to you. And it turns out it's because the guy is Verna von Braun, um, the disgraced former, um, you know, sort of engineering guru of NASA. Of course, in episode two, he is sort of outed as a um german yeah <laughs> as as you know someone who uh was one could say complicit in the holocaust i guess and margo has they've margo and he have clearly not been on speaking terms but this compels her to go to his home in huntsville alabama where he reveals both her father's involvement with the, the manhattan project and then also reveals why uh, the actuator was bad, and it's because the contract for manufacturing was moved from a company in Colorado Springs to one for Rockford, Illinois. And why is that important? Well, it's because the ERA was passed by Illinois. And basically, uh, he's found that Kennedy sort of moved the manufacturing as a political favor, and that led to the deaths of these 11 people, or 12 people, yeah. excuse me. Yeah, it's a, I re- it's a really great scene, like, towards the end. It's like 10 minutes long, and it's just Margot and Werner talking mm-hmm. and all this information being revealed and it's super compelling which like I have to clap my hands when it's like you can make a scene of just two people talking mm-hmm. and you know it's not just repetitious and they're just constantly revealing new information and it's like emotionally impactful and it like ties into their characters and whatnot it's like a really well done scene so I applaud them um, and I applaud you Mike for summarizing the entire <laughs> plot so uh so quickly there but yeah i know there's just a lot to unpack here it's like one i'm just glad that Werner von braun's back i think Colm fior does a great job playing the character he has got some great lines mm-hmm. when he talks about uh walt disney world saying yes. walt's vision is extraordinary <laughs> he is a great man <laughs> yes because like after episode two ended i was kind of bitter because like i wanted more Werner von braun mm-hmm. as i already mentioned because i liked the character so, like, this was kind of, like, the next sort of plot beat I was waiting for when it's revealed that Margot's father was working on the Manhattan Project. And, again, it's sort of like we were talking about the scene with Danielle and Gordo and Danielle's husband where it's like there's introducing more gray and it's like things aren't as black and white as we would like to believe sometimes. So I was glad that they had this. And, I like, I, I, I did kind of feel like I didn't understand why Margot decided to cut off all contact with Werner von Braun because I felt like it would make made not that much sense given her history with the character so i feel like that comes to the forefront a bit more and then i feel like the whole thing with Werner's report tying into the politics and the era was like just a a cherry on top which sort of tied a lot of things introduced in this episode together yeah i agree and it's kind of because at some point it's like why because they they spend like yeah he says like a 10 minute scene they spend a lot of time talking about margo's father i'm just kind of like why are they talking about, like, her father so much? And it's like, oh, it's because Werner is, like, her surrogate father. She kind of had a poor relationship with her biological father because he kept so much from her, right? He never told her he was in the Manhattan Project. He was apparently very distant. And now she's so upset at Werner, um, not only because he was, a you know, uh, you know uh, kind of a Nazi, but also because that was another secret he kept from her, right? Like, this is just, like, another another secret kept and another sort of like betrayal on her mind 
and then also this scene it it you know they kind of come to the conclusion where it's like every bureaucracy is corrupt it says this very sort of like almost like nihilistic like almost kind of quasi libertarian like idea where it's like every bureaucracy is corrupt so i'm gonna make the bureaucracy work for me in a way right because what happens is the report gives her leverage to essentially blackmail nasa into giving her her own flight command what did you think of margo at the beginning when she was just sort of like upset that she didn't get the job did you like that because it does kind of feel like whining when characters complain about how things are unfair when it's like we both know that life isn't always as fair as we would like it yeah a little bit i mean it kind of you know it's consistent i guess with her characterization as someone who feels passed over but i think the point is that in this episode it also points out that like yeah she is being kind of whiny because she isn't doing the thing she actually like she is doing like the point Werner makes is that like you are like you know you're good with the science you're good with the engineering you're doing all those things right like from a merit perspective you deserve it but he's like you are failing to create like the social connections and do this kind of like extra work you have to do if you want to advance your career right like you cannot just be sitting at your desk all day working these problems like you actually have to try and like endeavor to connect with the people around you so i feel like it, it, it you know it sets up this kind of like maybe quasi petulance maybe like a deserved in some sense a deserved petulance and then it kind of i guess tears that down and then builds marco back up through it and it's like it's surprising that at the end with weisner she was able to just she like makes the snap decision like oh i'm just gonna blackmail this guy yeah. she manages to do it exceptionally well for a first time blackmailing yeah I, well, that's what I couldn't make out. Is like, do you think she actually had a friend who was going to send it to the New York Times? I, I think she was bluffing, and I know it's a big cliche, but I think it would have uh, helped make the scene a bit more believable if Weisner was like, "You're bluffing." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I because I think when I first watched this episode, I was like, I just kind of took it at face value. I was like, oh, okay. But I'm like, wait a minute. The point is, she has no friends, so of course, there's no one to send it to the New York Times. It was Elena. She had Elena. Yeah, right. <laughs> she was send it to the New York Times. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like, I, I can't believe Weisner just, like, folded mm-hmm. so quickly. <laughs> it's just so funny. Yeah, especially because it's, like, it's not a thing where it's like, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. We'll just give you this open spot. It's like, we literally have no spots. And she's like, well, you'll find one. Like, you know, figure it out. Um, yeah, he, he does he does fall like a house of cards but this this won't be the first trouble for the kennedy administration we we can tell you that much oh <laughs> oh snap that's with the historically lucky family right yes face some troubles yeah and then she you know uh there's been this long simmering Aleda subplot in the show which mm-hmm. is starting to show some sparks when uh margo sort of decides to take on a mentorship role of young Aleda. mm-hmm much the same way that Werner mentored her in the ways of astrophysics and jazz piano. <laughs> yes, yeah. And that really, I, I know you haven't seen seasons two or three yet, but like that, I think, really drives, at some point, the rest of the series and also drives, that relationship drives, as as kind of like early on, as kind of like out of place, I feel like the Alita storyline feels at points, like that relationship, I think, drives a lot of the, the storytelling. And yeah, it's an interesting, um, it's, it's an interesting, I, I have to admit that when I first watched this episode, I don't know that I made like the one-to-one connection between Werner and Margot and, and, and like they're like him mentoring her and her mentoring Olia. Yeah, they're both really smart, 
physicists with an accent. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it is like the writers wanting to have their cake and eating it too by having Aleda here. Mm-hmm. It feels like they wanted to do both sort of have Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul at the same time <laughs> when it's like they could have had this show and then they could have made the Aleda prequel mm-hmm. before it. But uh, yeah, I'm just going to have to take your word for it that this all pays off eventually when President Aleda is sworn in to the Oval Office on Mars. <laughs> but I guess we'll have to wait and see. And then I guess the last thing we'll talk about for this podcast episode is um, Karen's plotline with um, their son Shane. <laughs> yeah, so so Shane's getting into a little, little, little bit of trouble. He and his friend Danny, who is the son of Gordo and Tracy, um, have been... They've been smashing water meters. They've been, you know, vandalizing school property. And Karen has kind of taken on this role where she's not only sort of the single mother of her son while her husband is up in space, but she's also now sort of trying to raise Gordo and Tracy's kids as well because they're both working constantly because they're both astronauts. And she, you know, this is just, again, another instance of her sort of being left behind by time in a way, right? I mean, like, there's the classic... In, in the episode prior, there's, like, the classic sort of, like, visual signifier of like two different women where it's like Tracy is wearing pants and Karen is wearing a dress and it signifies sort of like, you know, their divergent paths. There's also tension between Tracy and Gordo. It's like, it's clear that they're, they're going to separate soon. Um, They talk about buying an apartment, but more so there is kind of, in some ways I would say an unspoken tension between Ed and Karen where Ed's cracking up a little bit on the base and Karen is cracking up a little bit on Earth. And there's one scene where Karen's like brings Shane to like the the NASA like phone booth. And it's like, we're going to tell your father about you getting in trouble. But then ultimately she decides not to do so and spares her son his father's wrath. Yeah, and it follows uh, what you were saying last week and your your brilliant interpretation of the episode that went over my head of Karen uh, sort of replacing Ed. As mm-hmm. the father figure. So Karen, she decides to spare Ed the role of disciplinarian and just assumes the role uh, sort of Ed would be taking on Earth and that he should be taking in the traditional gender roles, which I thought was an inter- interesting continuation of that sort of theme. I guess we can talk briefly about the ending of this episode because I thought it was a little bit offbeat yeah. compared to what we've been getting. How did you, how did you interpret it, Mike? Because we just see Gordo walking around doing what ed jokingly refers to as apartment hunting on Mm -hmm. the moon walking around and then he sees these flashing red lights off in the distance what did what did you think of this scene mike the first time i saw it i i don't know what i think i didn't know what to make of it honestly when i first saw it i was like oh either he's being like there's some like reflection going on with like the jamestown base or he's just like completely losing it and he's just starting to see things which again that question of is he actually seeing something or is he, is he, is this all in his head is, is, is left open and kind of leaves you on a little bit of a cliffhanger almost. Yeah. When, when I saw it the first time, I didn't think much of it because they established that it's like the, the Russians landed mm-hmm. a similar base just eight miles Northwest. So I thought the whole point was Gordo's out there and he's like, wow, I'm all out here. No one's ever seen any of this before i'm the first person the very first mm-hmm. and then he sees the blinking red lights and i'm like oh that's the soviet base or whatnot so it's like ironic but yeah. now this time i watch it and i notice that in like the wide shot you mm. don't see any of the blinking lights so now i i'm wondering if this is meant to imply something about gordon's mental state yeah deteriorating yeah so um 
very offbeat ending, to say yes, the least. I would say so. Represents um, a new era for the show, in a way. Yeah, well, <laughs> you're making it sound like uh, Stan Lee now. <laughs> the most offbeat ending of the year. A brand new era for For All Mankind. Tune in next week, true believers. Um, yeah, and I guess that's what um, we're going to implore you guys to do. So, um, yeah. If anyone has any uh, questions, comments, or concerns, or any thoughts about the uh, two episodes we just watched, if anyone's ever been in the Montrose area at the Bayou Lounge, please <laughs> let us know how it is, how it is as a nightclub, whatever. Uh, Mike, how can people get in touch with us? Well, you can email us at contact at thepostwriter.com. You can also find this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. And please like, rate, and subscribe this podcast. Also, you can find me on Twitter at mlevito and on Letterboxd at Ameramike. Yeah, and you can find me at Twitter or on Letterboxd as well as at the Lewis Ryan. Thanks to you guys for listening. We really appreciate it, and we'll hope you turn in next week to listen to our thoughts as we continue through the rest of the first season of For All Mankind. So take care, everybody. Bye. Postwriter is primarily self-funded by its owners, and it costs hundreds of dollars per year to keep the site online. The money we raise and contribute ourselves allows us to pursue stories, projects, and interests that are important to us, while making them completely free to everyone online with minimal advertisements. We do, however, rely on contributions from readers, followers, and listeners like you to stay sustainable and go above and beyond. Every additional dollar we raise helps us do things like launch new podcasts, write more content, pursue larger projects, and engage more with current and future readers. If you're inclined to support us, you can go to thepostwriter.com donate to find out how to support the site and our projects financially. Thank you for your support and for contributing to the work we do.